good morning to each one of you. Uh, before we begin this morning, Brother Jim Shiflett asked me if I would be able to get up here <laughs> with all the things that are here on the stage, and I said, that's not going to be a problem. Getting down may be more of a problem, I don't know. But it certainly is good to see all of you here this morning. What a beautiful day our God has blessed us with to begin this new week in our life, to come together as His children to worship and to honor Him. My Bible this morning is open to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I would invite you to uh, open it there as well uh, this morning. Whoever said that sin will take you farther than you want to go, will keep you longer than you want to stay, and will cost you more than you want to pay, was exactly right. While on the surface, sin often seems to be something that is attractive to us. On the surface, sin seems to be something that is even exciting to us. On the surface, sin seems to be something that is pleasurable to us. When we dig beneath the surface of sin, we see it for what it really is. And that's the way the Bible presents sin to us. We see it as something that is ugly, not something that is beautiful. We see sin as something that is dirty. We see sin as something that is costly. This morning I want us to see sin's high cost by looking into the life of David here in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. I'm sure for those of us in the audience this morning that have been Christians for some time and even our young folks here uh, that have... Uh, uh, gotten into the Word at home or in our Bible classes, I'm sure that almost everyone who is of any age at all this morning knows what we're going to speak of today. But I believe it's good for us from time to time to remind ourselves of things that we know. And there might be something perhaps that is said this morning that will trigger a, a new thought in your mind about looking at sin. But even if it doesn't, there's hopefully a good admonition and warning for all of us as we think about the high cost of sin from the life of King David for a little while this morning. In chapter 11, and we're not going to take the time to read uh, this chapter, I'm assuming that everyone here knows it well. If you don't, you can go back and read that on your own uh, later this afternoon. But here in chapter 11, I believe we have the writer presenting to us the snowball effect of sin. We all remember how this account goes as it begins there in chapter 11 and verse 1 by telling us that it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabah but David stayed at Jerusalem and as David stays here in his palace the king's palace in the city of Jerusalem we find first of all in verse 2 of this chapter that he is up there on his roof the roofs of those uh, buildings and palaces and homes in that particular time, and even in that part of the world today, many of them are flat. We're not used to seeing flat roofs, at least in our houses here in this part of the country, or this country anyway. Maybe we think about buildings, uh, other structures having a flat roof to them, but he walks out onto his flat roof and he looks out into the city of Jerusalem and he sees this beautiful woman bathing. There is obviously no sin has taken place yet, but I believe there is a temptation that is put before David at this particular point. 
As we move to the next verse then, the text goes on to tell us that he continued to look upon this beautiful woman as she was bathing Bathsheba, and he began to desire her. He began to lust after her. And so temptation has come into his mind, has come into his heart, and he has a decision to make. He has a choice that he can make. He can go in one of two directions. He can either say no to that temptation and turn around and go back into his palace, turn his mind, his thoughts to other things, or he can continue to look. And he chose to continue to look. So rather than rejecting this temptation, here was King David pursuing this particular temptation, the the desire of his his eyes. We come to verse 4, and the text tells us here that he satisfied his desire, his lust, by committing adultery with this woman. Uh, even after he found out that she was a married woman, as he sent one of his messengers to inquire, who is this woman, to find out some more information about her, that he decided not only to uh, give in to this temptation, but to act upon this temptation and to commit a sin of a sexual nature with this woman who was married. We know the result of that, as the writer goes on to tell us there in verse 5, that Uh, Bathsheba at some point after that sent message back or word back to David and said that she was pregnant with their child. And so an unintended pregnancy occurs here. In verses 6 through 13, that's not the end of the story, is it? Because we know that David tries to cover up his sin. This attempted cover up involved, of course, bringing Bathsheba's uh, husband Uriah, who was uh, evidently, by the way, one of his loyal mighty men. You can read that list of David's loyal mighty men in 1 Chronicles chapter 11 at verse 41, it mentions Uriah the Hittite here. And here is David trying to kind of make this sin go away, if you will, trying to put it out of his mind, put it out of his sight, and hoping perhaps that no one else finds out about what he has done. And so he is trying to cover this sin, bringing Uriah, her husband, in and saying, well, why don't you just take a few days and go be with your wife as this great battle is going on? And Of course, he refuses to do that. He sleeps at the king's uh, doorstep, basically, with many other soldiers and servants of King David. And when that doesn't work, he gets Uriah drunk and hoping that he will return home and and, uh, he will uh, think that he is the father of this child that is about to be born. And then we know where this particular uh, event or episode in the life of David ends up at verses 14 through 25, that he commits murder that not only did Uriah suffer a senseless death, but we read here in those few verses I have here on the screen, 14 through 25, that there were other soldiers of David's army, of Israel's army that died as a result of David trying to cover up his sin. It wasn't just this one man that he was trying to get out of his life and get out of his conscience so that he wouldn't have any guilt about the sin that he had committed, but there were other Men who were, I don't know if mighty men, but just soldiers of his that perished that particular day as well. This text, of course, shows us very clearly what I'm describing as sin snowball effect in the life of David. And it certainly has that effect, or at least has the potential to have that effect in our life as well. Something may start out very small, at least we think it is small. But if it is left alone, it will rapidly grow into something that is huge, something that is just out of our control, that we can no longer control it. David is trying to control this situation. He's trying to do damage control, we might say. But this is the nature of sin from the passage that our brother uh, 
What's your name? Richard. <laughs> All I could think of was Barnes. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not 50 yet, okay? <laughs> the passage that Brother Richard read for us a few moments ago from James chapter 1, that sin begins in our life. That it begins even before there's sin in our life. It begins as a desire. It begins as a desire within us that we shouldn't blame God. We shouldn't turn to God and say, you are responsible for getting me into this situation. You were responsible. I just didn't have any other choice. I didn't have any other avenue. There was no way of escape in the words of Scripture out of this situation. But sin begins really before it begins as sin as a temptation, a desire that becomes a temptation that becomes a sin. And then sin, when it is full grown or is accomplished, it brings forth death in our life. This is what happened in the life of King David, that sin just snowballed until it was no longer just the sin that was of a sexual nature. Now he has taken the life. Now he has murdered innocent people. Well, we come to chapter 12 and we remember, I think, the account, the conversation uh, between Nathan and David that uh, God sends his prophet, his messenger, Nathan, to talk to this man that is described in Scripture as a man after his own heart. And I do want to read some of these verses here. So read along with me in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, beginning at verse 1. 2 Samuel 12 and verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he said to him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife." Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Just to summarize what is going on here is 
the high cost of sin is beginning at this particular point to sink into David that he is beginning to realize the full import, the full consequences, if you will, of his sin. God sends his prophet Nathan, as we mentioned just a moment ago, to confront David about his sin. And Nathan obviously did that by telling David this little story, this parable about this rich man uh, taking all that his poor neighbor had. Just this one little ewe lamb and someone comes to visit him. He has guests in his house. And rather than taking from, I assume, one of his many lambs to provide for this guest, he decides that he's going to take this poor man's little lamb. David rightly responds to the story, the parable that Nathan tells him with a righteous anger and says, this man deserves death. David knew what should happen to this man. David knew the cost of that particular rich man's sin, if you will. David knew the law. He knew what was required. But then Nathan, of course, brought that illustration home by saying to him, you're the one I'm talking about. You are the man. You are the rich man in this parable who has taken, stolen the poor man's little ewe lamb. But more than that, he also reminded David, if you remember in, back in our uh, reading as he begins there at verses 7 and 8, of course, God really speaking through Nathan here. Nathan reminding David that God had abundantly blessed David as being, his, being king of his people God had given David everything that he needed, and if that weren't enough, God would have continued to bless him with everything that he could desire. And yet David had returned God's blessings not with a grateful obedience, but David had returned God's blessing by despising God's word, by saying that I'm going to do what I want to do in this situation and committing sin against God. David, of course, I believe this is one reason why he is described in Scripture the way that he is. When he was confronted with his sin, he admitted his sin. Surely he knew. Surely he knew that he had sinned. And although the Lord showed mercy on this occasion in verse 13 by taking away his sin, by sparing his life, the fact still remains that David paid a very high price for the rest of his earthly life as a result of this sin. God forgave him, but he still had to suffer the consequences of this sin. So I want us to think for just a few minutes about those four costs that are mentioned here in the text that we have just read, again from verses 10 through 14. The first cost for David in his life was that there would be continual violence and continual death in David's family. And Nathan put it this way as he spoke to David here, that the sword shall never depart from your house. The child also there at verse 14 that is born to you shall surely die. And we see those things coming to pass as we continue reading here in this account uh, about David's life in the future. Here in chapter 12, beginning at verse 15, uh, notice then it says to us that then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood before him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. 
And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we do him? Uh, how then can we tell him, rather, that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. This child that was born to David and Bathsheba, we are told here, I don't know exactly how much time has passed between Nathan coming and uh, speaking to David earlier in this chapter and these events unfolding in the last part of this chapter. But some time has passed. The child that is born to David and Bathsheba becomes sick. That child suffers with that sickness, we are told here, for seven days. And then the child died. Over into chapter 13, we read about more violence and death uh, coming about in the, the family of David. In chapter 13 at verse 28, chapter 13 and verse 28, and we'll come back and speak about some things that happened earlier in this chapter here in just a minute. But Absalom, it says, commanded his servants saying, see now when Amnon's heart, his brother's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear, have, you, have not I myself commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. The servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Here are two of David's sons. On this occasion, Absalom, his third son, Amnon, his firstborn son. And Absalom decides that he's going to murder Amnon. There is death, there is violence in David's family, in his lineage. And then over into chapter 18 with Absalom himself, uh, chapter 18 beginning at verse 14, you might remember here that Absalom has, has really put himself as king on the throne that, that David and his entourage have left the, the city of Jerusalem. They are, are wandering around for their life now. And David has given orders to his Army commander Joab, if you see Absalom, do not kill him. Bring him here to me alive. And that order was to go out to all the army. But Absalom, or uh, Joab rather, takes matters into his own hands here. At verse 14 of chapter 18, then Joab said, I will not waste time here with you as the servants, the other soldiers had found Absalom and said, you remember the king's order. So he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men who carried Joab's armor gathered around and struck Absalom and killed him. So despite the king's order, David's order, here is Joab, an army commander of his, deciding he's going to take matters into his own hand and murdering Absalom. All of these things that come about from that time on after David has committed his sins of sexual sin and murder, I realize all of these people that we're reading about in subsequent chapters, they are people of free will. They can make their own choices about the situations that they find themselves in. But it seems to me as that consequence of David's sin was given that we see it playing out in his life. That there's just going to be the sword that never departs from his house that as we read about the end of chapter 12 that this son born to David and Bathsheba did die. And I just have to think as a father that surely 
when his sons died, that David's mind always went back to the words of Nathan. And David's mind surely went back to his own sins. And how he must have felt as a father to to have thought time and time again, I wish I would not have done that. I wish when when that desire came into my mind that I would have turned my back on that, that I would have walked back into the palace, that that it wouldn't have gone down the road that that I went down. Tell you, this was a very high cost that David paid as a result of his own sins. Connected to that, of course, is what Nathan goes on to tell David back in our text in 2 Kings chapter 12 and verse 11, the first part of that verse, that there will be constant con- uh, family conflict. He says, not only will the sword not depart from your house, but also I will raise up evil against you from your own household. David would be affected by, and sometimes David, as we've already seen with Absalom, would be the target of his family's wickedness. We're not going to take the time to read all this just for the sake of time this morning, but back earlier in chapter 13 as we were looking toward the end of that chapter, but earlier in that chapter, you might remember the account of Amnon and Tamar. And now Amnon, kind of following in his father's footsteps, he desired his sister, his half-sister Tamar. He desired to have a sexual experience with her. There is that unrest. And as we've read about, uh, that was certainly a shameful thing, and Tamar uh, was shamed about that. But we notice here how David reacts to all of what has gone on here. In verse 21, the text says to us, when King David heard all of these matters, he was very angered. I tell you, other than murder within one's family, could there be a sin that is more shameful than rape, what is taking place here, than incest? I'm not saying to you this morning that that one sin is worse than another, but there are some sins we realize, as the Bible even talks to us about some of those specific sins that we can commit that have greater consequences in our life. But it hurt David so much that he became angry about what his son had done. I have to think that perhaps he was thinking back in his own mind, I I pretty much kind of did the same thing. (laughs) Yes, Bathsheba, I realize, wasn't a relative of David as far as we know. But he had committed sexual sin. Here is his son going down that same road. We come to chapter 15 with Absalom, again, his son being on the throne and David running for his life. And we read here, uh, at verses 1 through 6, that it came about after, uh, after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise up early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, But no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Drop down to verse 10, it tells us that Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say Absalom is king in Hebron. 
Then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem who were invited and went innocently and they did not know anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, uh, Gilo, while he was offering the sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. Then a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from, from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Now it's not just David's children or David's family that is the source of conflict, but now David himself is a target of evil from his own son. Here is his own son conspiring against him. As the text says to us here, just uh, I kind of like this language here because it puts a picture in our mind of really what Absalom was doing here, stealing away the hearts of the men of Israel, making himself king in David's place. God had chosen David to be king. But here is his son taking over. Yes, we can see once again that David's sins that are recorded for us in chapter 11, they cost him very dearly. He suffered physically. He suffered surely emotionally as he is giving this order, just deal justly, deal gently with my son Absalom, even though he has pushed him out as king. Relationally, he is suffering because here are his children and they're doing all of these despicable acts. David sins had a high cost in his life. Thirdly, we read as we go back to our chapter, our text in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, that there would be open display now of David's secret sin. The last part of verse 11 into the first part of verse 12, there Nathan said to David, your companion will lie with your wives in broad daylight. That comes to pass when we come to chapter 16. At verses 20 through 22, when Absalom is here reigning as king, Uh, Verse 20, then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your advice, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go in your father's concubines, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Though David has already fled Jerusalem, the city, he's fled his palace by this particular point, he left 10 concubines to keep the house. We read back in chapter 15 and verse 16. But here was Absalom uh, talking to one of his father's advisors, his counselors, and he listened to Ahithophel's counsel and he lay, it says, with the concubines of his father on the rooftop of David's house in broad daylight as Nathan had said back in chapter 12, as is said to us in this text, in the sight of all Israel, that David's sin had begun there on the rooftop of the king's palace, and now it was coming full circle to where his son, Absalom, was committing the same sin. But it was not done secretly. Now it was done for all Israel to see. David's private sin had very public consequences. Sometimes the the devil can work on us in this way. The devil is such a good deceiver. He is the father of lies, as Jesus described him in John chapter 8. 
And he is so good at deceiving us that he can make us think, well, you know, yes, this is a sin. Yes, you're violating God's law. Yes, you're, you're not pleasing to God. You, you're falling short of God's glory when you commit this sin. But, but, but it's just a private matter. And you can get over that. You can change your life. It won't affect you from this time on. Nobody else will know about it. But we see here in the example of David in his life as he committed these sins, what started out as a very private sin had very public consequences. Be sure our sins will find us out, the Bible tells us. What a high price the beloved king of Israel paid for his sins. And then fourthly and finally, and in my mind, this is the greatest of all, the most serious of all the consequences that David had to deal with, is that as a result of David's sin, God's holy name was open to blasphemy. The first part of verse 14 back in 2 Samuel chapter 12 David said, or Nathan rather said to David, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The evil that David did gave God's enemies as if they needed another reason, as if they needed another uh, example to use against Jehovah God. The evil that David did gave God's enemies, the nations around Israel, uh, another opportunity to speak evil of or to speak irreverently about God. Here, here is a man whom God himself has chosen, has handpicked to place as king, to put on the throne of Israel. Here is God's man. And this is the way he treats God? This, this is what he thinks about his God? Of all the costs associated with David's sins that we have looked at this morning, surely this one for David hurt the most. Because as we have pointed out, Several times this morning, David was a man after God's own heart. Surely it hurt him. Surely it, it drove a spike, if you will, into the very recesses of who David was. To know now he's given an open door to the Lord's enemies to blaspheme him. Tell you what, brothers and sisters, even if we don't suffer this specific consequence, even if our sin does remain somewhat of a private matter or just within our circle or sphere of influence, I think we need to learn a lesson here from David, and that's this, that when we sin, we are giving the opposition an opportunity to speak evil of God. And, and we know as Christians, don't we, we live in a, in a world, in a culture Maybe it's people that we work with. Maybe it's people that we go to school with. It may be people in our own physical family that are not believers in Christ. It may be people that we know in our neighborhood or, or our acquaintances. Not all of those people, but there are some people who are just looking for an opportunity <laughs> to say, hey, you claim to be something different. You claim to follow Jesus the Christ. You claim to follow the, the God of heaven and earth. But, but look at your life. Surely he's not truly Jehovah. Do we think about that when we're faced with temptation? Do we think about that when we give in to sin? I doubt very seriously that David could have, could have ever imagined just how much his sins would cost him and his family and his nation. He's the king. 
and his God. But I believe it's very clear as we look at this point in David's life here in 2 Samuel 11 and verse 12 that it cost all of them dearly. And so if we learn anything from David's sins, it is that sin's cost is very high. The devil will tell us otherwise, but God gives us the truth about sin. It will take us farther than we want to go. It will keep us longer than we want to stay. And it will surely cost us more than we want to pay. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus came to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And because of that, we surely can be forgiven just as David and his heart was turned toward God and his heart was humbled before God when he realized he was the man. God, through Jesus Christ, will take away our sin. But sometimes we still have to live with the consequences of that. Sometimes we still have to live with the cost that sin has brought into our life. What about you this morning? Is sin standing between you and God? If it is, God has provided the solution, the only solution for our sin. And that is His Son, Jesus the Christ. He willingly came to this world for the joy that was set before Him. The Hebrews writer reminds us in chapter 12, He endured the pain and the shame, the suffering of the cross because He knew that that would bring about our salvation. What about you this morning? Do you need to respond to what God is offering you in Christ? If you're not a Christian, this is a perfect opportunity for you to become one. You can come before the audience this morning confessing your faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, turning away from your sin, and then being buried with Him in the waters of baptism. I know we have all of this set up here, but I'm sure we can open these doors if someone wants to be buried with Christ, if someone wants to become a Christian this very hour, we would love to see that this morning. We would rejoice with you and with this family of God here and rejoice with God himself and all of his angels and all of his heavenly hosts. It may be that you are a child of God and yet sin has separated you from your God. And you need to come with that humble, contrite heart like David did. And if you come, God will forgive you. But there may be some things that you still have to bear in your life, some hard, difficult things because of the choices that you have made. But you don't have to face that alone. You have God to help you, but you have your brothers and sisters here to help you as well. However, we can be of help to you if you know that you need to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that very thing now as we stand and as we sing?